Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship you in the context of your faithfulness. We fail so often. We fall far short of a mark. But Lord, in your grace and mercy, you forgive and you call us to yourself to be restored. And we're thankful that your faithfulness is new every morning and as fresh as the sunrise. We thank you, Lord, that you will never change your character. You remain the same forever. And we can sing, great is thy faithfulness. We come to you, Lord, this morning to be taught by your word and pray that this word would trans transform our way of living. Not just add knowledge theological to our heads, but Lord, that it will change our life in a very practical and meaningful way. Lord, may the truth of your word be opened up to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and may we be changed into the image of your Son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. About 16 years ago, a woman started a movement rather unintentionally. Her name was Sue Ellen Cooper, and she lived in Fullerton, California. It was on the account of the birthday of her friend who just turned 55. And she gave her friend a very unique gift. It was an antique bowler. For those of you born after World War II, that's a hat. It was red. And along with the red hat, the poem from Jenny Joseph, which read, When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple with a red hat that doesn't go and doesn't suit me. Well, it became such a deal that many others requested the same thing. And in doing so, a movement was started called the Red Hat Society. Have you ever seen the group of ladies with the red hats? Maybe some of you are, are part of that group. Apparently, it started out as a, a group for ladies over the age of 50 called the Red Hatters, and their motto was friendship and fun after 50. But now I'm told that younger ladies can join, and they have to wear pink hats until you're over 50, and then you have to wear red hats, something like that. But I tell you what, it is unmistakable to see the badge of membership for those people. It's the uh, sometimes beautiful, often gaudy, wild red hat that they wear. And you know they're a member of the Red Hatters. Everyone knows that. What is the badge for a true believer in Jesus Christ? What is the identifying mark of someone who is truly a follower of Jesus? Well, I, I suppose we could say a lot of different things, but I love the words from Christ himself quoted in John 13, verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. Love is the badge of the believer. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, John again writes these same words from a slightly different perspective when he says, we know we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Somehow it's innate in every true child of God. 
We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren, and they know that we're followers of Christ because we love the brethren. It's not something that we have to make up. It's something that we want to do. It's part of our new regenerate DNA. It's part and parcel of being a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so we're not to be identified simply because we have a shared social agenda. We're not to be identified by the particular political party we're joining. We're not to be even identified because we're members of some religious denomination. They are no, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Now, sometimes we think of love only in terms of emotion, something warm, sometimes fuzzy, something that can't be defined. But I love how practical the Bible is. The Bible says this is love. Even John warned, don't love in word and tongue only, but love in deed. And love in truth. So the Bible makes it abundantly clear what love is in a practical way. And that's why Paul talks about love in action in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we've been going through the study of this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul to a new church, he was afraid that maybe persecution and the difficult trials they were facing had somehow robbed them of their faith. So he sent Timothy to investigate, and Timothy came back with a great report. Man, they're going strong. They're a model church. And Paul praises God for that. And then he gets into some practical instruction when we come to chapter 4. Look at verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now, about brotherly love... It's very evident that the Apostle Paul is now moving to a new section. It's actually a subcategory of his major theme. If you go back to verse 1, his major theme is, how should we live to please God? What is the life? What activities are in the life? The attitudes that are in the life of the one who lives to please God, who walks to please God. And this chapter tells us several things. We already noticed sexual purity is part of living to please God. First eight verses. He's going to talk about brotherly love and diligent work and even a proper appreciation for the second coming of Christ and what that means with regard to the death of a loved one. All of this under the category of how to live to please God. So he says, let's go to a new topic under that major theme Brotherly love. Now about brotherly love, we have no need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life might win the respect of the outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent upon anyone. I thought maybe we had two subjects here, brotherly love in verse 9 and 10, and uh, diligent work in verse 11 and 12. The old NIV has a period at the end of verse 10. 
as though that's the end of the thought. And a new thought is being picked up in verse 11. But many translations, including the newer translation of the NIV, shows exactly what's in the original language, the, the word and, the connecting word. So that verse 10 continues on in its sentence into verse 11. It's the same idea. So the whole thing here is about love in action. And when we do this, we live a life that pleases the Lord. So, what is Paul going to say about love and action? Well, first of all, he tells us something about the nature of love. That's in verse 9. Now, about brotherly love, the Greek word for brotherly love, you know it well. It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia is bringing together this idea of love for your brother. Initially, the word meant loving your blood relatives, but then it was broadened to loving all of those who are part of the fraternity of faith. Brotherly love, love for other believers in Jesus Christ. And this is a big topic in the New Testament. It's mentioned at least 21 times. Love one another. Love one another. 1 Peter 4.8, love one another deeply. Again, that's part and parcel of being a Christian. But this brotherly love, Philadelphia, is a small part of the larger term for love, which is mentioned at the end of verse 9. We've been taught by God to love, agape, each other. So he's getting into this category which is so imperative for the child of God and so important for our witness now, with regard to the nature of this, law, of this love, he says it really is God-given or God-taught. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's why it's innate, right? There are some things you don't have to teach a baby how to do. In particular, be selfish. <laughs> it's innate. And there's something that you shouldn't have to teach a Christian how to do. Love other Christians because it's innate. You're taught by God. This was predicted back in Jeremiah 31. The Lord said, I'm going to make a covenant with Israel in those days. And I will write their, my law on their mind. And I will write it on their hearts. And there'll be no need for anyone to teach them because everyone will know me. I'll write the law internally in them. So in the Old Testament, you've got the Old Testament prophets primarily preaching the mind and heart and will of God. Sometimes it comes through visions and, and revelations. Usually it's the prophets who get those, and then they proclaim that truth to God's people. In the New Covenant, it's Jesus Christ teaching the ways of God to the people. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in uh, those old days, our forefathers heard the word of God being spoken through the prophets. But now, in these last times, we're hearing God's word through the Son. He is the embodiment of the word. That's why he's called the word in John chapter 1. Jesus is the word of God, personified so people can see it and hear it. And then it will be codified, it will be inscripturated, it will be written down in a book. 
And now we have God teaching us through his spirit, through his word. I think foremost in the apostle's mind when he talks about God teaching us is this idea that we are spirit taught. John chapter 14, Jesus said, when the comforter comes, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Now, maybe a primary application of that is to the apostles themselves, but certainly in a general way, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit teaching us. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually oriented and discerned. It's the Holy Spirit who brings illumination. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conversion and understanding. You cannot understand the Bible without the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's not enough for me to study the English and to learn the syntax and be right in my grammar. There's something more supernatural and spiritual about this book. I need to be God-taught. And he uses this book to do it. And one of the things that God teaches every true child is that love is the badge of the believer. The source is God, right? First John, God is love. And if you want to define love, get a good understanding of who God is. But he goes on in talking about the nature of love to say that this love is an increasing love. It should be an ever-growing love, right? He says in verse 9, there's no need for me to write to you because God has taught you to love. And in fact, in point of fact, verse 10, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's a huge area. The Via Ignatia, the road that went from Constantinople uh, all the way over to Rome, went right through Thessalonica. And their testimony was so known that it just spread as people traveled. Have you heard about those people in Thessalonica? Boy, they really love each other. And they love all the other Greeks in the northern area of Greece. So he says in verse 10, and yet we urge you to love more. They're already doing a good job, but he says don't sit back on your accomplishments. Don't be self-satisfied with the measure of love that you demonstrate today. Grow more and more. By the way, this is almost the exact same construction as we saw back in verse 1, verse 10 and verse 1. I urge you more and more. I urge you to learn to please God more and more, even though you're doing it. I urge you to love other brothers more and more, even though you're doing it. This church, I believe, demonstrates the love of God as we love one another. But we could do so much more, couldn't we? Have you arrived? Are you satisfied with your demonstration of love? What in a practical way are you doing to show that you love other Christians? Now, the neat thing about this is they took this message to heart and they did it. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, written a short time after the first letter, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love that every one of you has for each other is increasing. 
They got the message. They're making progress. They didn't just stay in their position of accomplishment or, or whatever attainment of this practical love. They pushed forward and did more, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants us to do. South Church, are you a loving church? I think a lot of us would say it is. Have we arrived? Then why do we sit back? Why don't we do more? Love in its nature comes from God and should keep growing. That's what Paul says. Now, he goes from the nature of love to the demonstration of love, and here's where you may be shocked. If you think that love is just kind of the warm, fuzzy feeling, the Apostle Paul has news for you. Because what he does is to give us three clear ways to demonstrate love to others and not the normal ways of love. Remember, we're connecting from verse 10 to verse 11 with the same subject. And Paul gives three separate commands, very clear in the original. And here's the first command. Lead a quiet love life. This is the first way to demonstrate that you love other people. Lead a quiet life. Now, if that confuses you, let me confuse you a little more. G.G. Finley, a great Bible expositor, was writing way back in 1904, says, what you have here is a striking oxymoron. It's a play on words. Another way to interpret this phrase would be to say, seek aggressively to be laid back. And you go, what? Or I like J.B. Phillips' paraphrase even better. He says, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Huh? <laughs> this is how we are to love one another. And so you're asking yourself, what's going on? By the way, the Bible is often written in such a way that it doesn't open up to the casual reader. You've got to spend some time meditating, thinking, looking at other portions of Scripture, because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Right? And especially read the second letter because it's written to the same people about many of the same subjects. The, the key theme that Paul deals with in every chapter is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right? But they were getting it wrong, at least to a degree. Look at 2 Thessalonians just for a moment in chapter 2. Paul is writing... He says in verse 1, um, Now I want to deal with the subject of the second coming of Christ and our gathering to him. And I'm writing these things because I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want you to become anxious. I don't want you to be confused and troubled. Whether it's by word of mouth or someone says this is what Paul is preaching in other places. I don't want you to be confused thinking that Christ has already come. So here is one of the misunderstandings regarding the doctrine of eschatology, the second coming of Christ, the last things. Some people thought Christ had already come, and they were in despair. Not only that, F.F. F. Bruce, a great Bible scholar, says there seems to be uh, another problem with eschatology gone awry. The understanding of the second coming of Christ misunderstood Chapter 3, verse 11. 
for I've heard that there are idle people among you, some who live and don't work. They're living in a disorderly manner. They are, what's the word? Busybodies. Verse 12, now those who are like this, we exhort and command by the authority of Jesus Christ that they learn to lead a quiet life and to work and gain bread for themselves. Now it appears that another group of people thought that the second coming of Christ was so imminent, they decided they could give up work. Jesus is coming. Hey, I don't have to work. That is really good news, because I hate my job. And I would love for someone else to take care of me. And Jesus is coming anyhow, so why be concerned? And apparently, there was a group of people who began to have this poor view of an obligation to do honest labor. This is true. This, is a, this actually happened. A church, I can't remember where it was, but a church went into a building program and the debt was going to be huge. And when the people in the congregation in their business meeting asked the leaders, how come you're going into such debt? I don't think we can ever pay that debt. And one of the leaders, I think it was the pastor, said, you don't need to worry about paying that debt. Jesus is going to come before we have to pay it. <laughs> I don't think that church exists today. I don't know. It'd be interesting to do a follow-up, wouldn't it? That is horrible theology. And that was happening in Thessalonica. Remember model church? Growing faith? No need to write to you about love? But hey, you've got some areas of theology that are a little out of whack. What we're dealing with here are people who became very ambitious for something that might have had a kernel of truth to it, but it was blown out of proportion. It was theology unbalanced. And we've got so much of that in our church today. Instead of people just doing quietly and faithfully what God has called them to do, to live to please God, they've got to get on a hobby horse. And eschatology is one of the most popular ones. Now, sometimes these people will self-identify for you. I mean, they'll come up to you, and right away they'll tell you what their hobby horse is. You ever notice that? Uh, hi, good to meet you. I'm a King James-only Christian. Okay. <laughs> glad to meet you. I know what's coming. Hey, glad to meet you. Uh, I'm a premillennial dispensationalist. Okay, good to meet you. Hi, I'm a, I'm a reformed theologian. I believe in John Calvin. Okay, I know where this is going. <laughs> I'm a charismatic Christian, someone will say. Thanks for telling me in a language I could understand. I know where this is going to go. <laughs> Doug can attest to this. We constantly are having people come to us saying, pastors, our church has got to do this. This is the next big thing. There's usually a book with it and CDs and a payment that you have to make to get in the program. But this, and they're good things. Often they're good things. But it's the next big thing. And then it becomes the only thing. This is all that exists. There's nothing in Christianity outside of this. And they become ambitious instead of just doing what they ought to do faithfully and quietly. 
causing a stir in the church when there doesn't need to be one. Make it your ambition to have no ambition except to live to please God. Isn't that good? I'd love to have someone come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm all about loving Jesus. That's it. Whatever that means, spoken in the word of God, spelled out in the truth of scripture, that's what I'm about. I want to live to please God. The second thing he says is pretty interesting too. You want to demonstrate love? Mind your own business. <laughs> I don't know if he said it that way, but I like saying it that way. And that's normally how I heard it, you know. If I ever hear that phrase, it's someone telling me, mind your own business. Is it possible to be so curious about the affairs of others that you have to be involved in everything they do? You have to know everything about them? Is it is it possible that in the church of Jesus Christ there could be some people who are motivated by this compulsion to be totally involved in your affairs? Meddlers. I went to the dictionary because I needed some synonyms. Here they are, meddlers. A nuisance, a pest. An annoying person, a busybody. People who are frankly just nosy. That's a sin. Now, you and I are supposed to care for others, aren't we? Right? That's biblical. But it's sinful to be a busybody. Where's the line? I don't even know. I suppose God is going to give you enough grace when you're in that situation to realize when you're really caring with the right motive for someone and when you're simply just a busy body. But that hurts the cause of Christ. Instead of being about the king's business, we're always trying to butt in in the business of everyone else and there needs to be a bit of a that's your own life, that's your own decision type of mentality. Mind your own business. Someone said, in the church you always have the what about him syndrome. You ever heard about that one? The what about him syndrome? It comes from John 21. Remember when Peter had sinned and Jesus was trying to bring him back? And Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And that went like through a cycle of three times. And and then it was predicted how Peter would die. He would die a, a pretty weird death. History tells us he was crucified upside down. And after Peter had gotten all this from Jesus, he saw John, and you know what Peter said? What about him? That's what we always do. You know, after we've been taken down a peg or two, don't kids do this? You know, you're getting on one of your kids for something. What about him? We Christians do the same thing. What about him? And Jesus said, if I want John to live until I die, what is that to you? Peter is the chief apostle. He's kind of the guy that knows everything that's going on. And Jesus says, almost sounds rude in the English, what is that to you? By the way, that caused some misunderstanding about eschatology because people thought that means John's not going to die until Jesus comes and a whole new misunderstanding was built up. Mind your own business. And then the third thing he says, work with your hands. These are three separate commands. Work with your own hands. You see, the Greeks thought that manual labor was beneath them. 
Only slaves should be involved in that type of work. And then Jesus came along and was a carpenter. And the Apostle Paul was ministering in their midst by making tents, thus dignifying and sanctifying honest manual labor. We read, and it's also in chapter 5, verse 14, we exhort you, brethren, some of you are idle. Some are faint-hearted, some are weak. Some of you are so idle that you're not doing any work, and you're hoping to cash in on the kindness of other believers. And you're quoting all the verses to them. Take care of one another, love one another. That's what the Bible says. I expect you to do it for me. And Paul says, no, real love is where you work with your own hands. Paul said in Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no more, now that you're a Christian. Work with your own hands. Do something honest and constructive so you can meet your own needs and even have a little left over to give to the needs of others. Now there are true people in need, and we are told to help meet those needs. But there are also people who don't want to work and won't work. And Paul is going to say to them, if you don't work, you don't eat. Work with your own hands. That is love. Now, the impact of all of this is amazing. The impact of love, first of all, to those who are on the outside. Look at verse 12. You were to do this so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders. Now, that is not a term of derision, outsiders. It's a statement of fact. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you are outside of Christ. If you don't trust him as your Lord and Savior, you're outside the family of God. You're outside of the, uh, of the place of safety. You're lost. And we need to think of our lives as testimonies to the outsiders. And they're watching us, by the way. They're watching us, what we do, what we say. They shall know we are Christians by our... Is that what they see in the church? Love? No, they often see the busybodies. And they often see people building up doctrines out of proportion and they see sometimes people not willing to work but expecting a handout and calling themselves Christian. Maybe they had already lost the respect of many people because of the idle people in the group. We've got to live our lives as a daily witness to those who are watching. The gospel is not simply something to be proclaimed from our lips. It's something to be adorned by our lives. Our attitudes, our actions need to speak so loudly about the goodness of Christ that people will be attracted. And the insiders, well, here's another wonderful result, so that you'll not be dependent upon anyone. Honorably independent is the way you ought to live. Work for yourself. That's a mark of love. John Stott puts it so well. True, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it is also an expression of love to support yourself so that you will not be a burden to anyone else.
And in doing this, the watching world sees what the gospel of Christ is all about. People whose lives have been radically transformed, who are more concerned about others than themselves, who mind their own business, do their own work, have no selfish ambition. Their only desire is to please God and love others. Remember that poem that kind of puts it all together? You're writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, love is so practical. It's not so esoteric, it's not so abstract that we cannot, in a very definitive way, measure increasing love. Love is obeying your word. Love is putting others ahead of ourself. Love is taking care of our own needs and working hard so that we might have some to meet the real needs of others. Love is making sure that our theology is biblically balanced and not out of whack. Lord, I pray, increase this type of love here at South Church and in every Bible-believing church across this land. In Jesus' name, amen.